0: We're going to look this week at the book of Ecclesiastes, next week at Job, and then kind of circle around and figure out what they're all trying to say together, and then uh, look at some topics that wisdom uh, in the Bible talks to us about. we come today to a book that people either hate or love, and I hope to show you by the end of it, it's a book really worthy of your love and care. So let me, um, let me go ahead and uh, pray for us as we open up our uh, minds and our souls to understand what, uh, what God has for us. Let's, let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, we come today in a gray world with a gray sky. We come today as hearts that, that, that are neither fully black or fully white. We come living under this sun. We come having toiled. We come perhaps tired or sweaty. And yet, Lord, we come fearing you. We ask that you would give us a greater sense of what the Christian life is like, today, as we study your word, give us the mind of Christ. Give us the power of your spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, 2014, I think it was, a couple of years before he died, uh, the the famous boxer Muhammad Ali was interviewed by Sports Illustrated. They went to him. You may know Muhammad Ali, of course. Uh, I think he gave the He he, uh, brought the Olympic torch to Atlanta during the 96 Olympics. Of course, he struggled with Parkinson's. The the estimation is that he took over 200,000 blows to his body over the course of his boxing career. So, of course, by this time, he was suffering mightily. Here's what the uh, reporter says. Ali entered the long driveway of his farm. He parked. He left the car. He led me into the barn On the floor, leaning against the walls were paintings and photographs of Ali in his prime, arms thrown up in triumph, eyes keen, surrounded by the people he took around the world with him, his entourage. He looked closer. He noticed something. Every picture across his face, streaks of bird dung. He glanced up to the roof. He saw the pigeons in the barn. No emotion, no malice flickered in his eyes. One by one, he turned the pictures around to face the wall. Outside, he stood motionless. He spoke from his throat without moving his lips. I had to ask Ali to repeat it. Here's what he said. I had the world, and it wasn't nothing. He paused and he pointed back to the barn. Look now. I had the world, and it wasn't nothing. I had it all, he said, of course. But what now? Bird poop. Right? That's, that's where the life ends. In, what, in one great sense, this is the, the great theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. You find that even in the opening verse here, the ESV translates it, uh, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We'll get into that, of course, the question of that word, but it really points to the fact, the story of Ali, the story of this book. It points to a very different world, seemingly, than the world of Proverbs. In the world of Proverbs, everything's very happy. You, know, you do good. You get rewarded. You achieve well. You, you get blessed. You don't achieve well. You don't work hard. You get cursed. Ali worked hard. He boxed at a high peak. What happened? Bird dumb at the end of his life. And, of course, you've experienced this, not not in the same way, not but you've experienced this when it comes to the last few years, the pandemic. You've experienced the reality of the the absurdity that grandparents can't attend their grandkids' birthday parties. You've experienced the absurdity of loved ones in the hospital, and you can't visit them. They're behind a glass or a screen. You've experienced the low-level absurdity of restaurants being closed. And, of course, the unknowns of the next year. What's going to happen in terms of the world? We have no idea. That's why we need this book. This book has been hated by many Christians. It's been loved by many Christians, sometimes for the right reasons, for the wrong reasons. But let me show you this morning uh, why I think it is a book worthy uh, for our study and worthy to be part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. You have an outline here. We'll look at first uh, a question I usually don't ask, but we have to ask it here. Who's the author? Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? We study a book, we ask that. Sometimes it's really obvious. You know, you, you look at Proverbs, and you see that it begins with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. We get an answer here, however, in the first verse of Ecclesiastes. I've included, by the way, uh, the two key passages on the back of your handout. I've included the two key passages for, for your, uh, your benefit that we're going to look at this morning. We can't cover all the book, obviously. But you'll see here, we we get an opening uh, description of the author. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this is the preacher or the teacher, first labeled by Luther, that name. But in the Hebrew, it's uh, this this word, a Q word, Kohelet. Uh, Meaning somebody who teaches an assembly or a gathering. Somebody who may even preach at a church gathering, something like that. And so that's why the ESV translates it preacher, others say teacher. Um, Most of the scholars use this Hebrew word, koheleth. It's not a name, it's not a guy's name, it's a title. It's um, from the Hebrew word kahal, meaning a gathering. It's actually why we call the book Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes uh, is referencing the Greek word ekklesia. Some of y'all may know that word, ekklesia, the word for the church, the word for the assembly, a gathering. The teacher is the guy who would address it. That word teacher or preacher is used seven times in this book. So uh, I'll refer to him from time to time today. A teacher, preacher, Kohelet, you kind of get the guy I'm talking about here. Um, so who, who is he? Who is this guy? That's not actually an easy question to answer. The traditional, the common answer uh, has always been that it's Solomon. You know, you see in the first verse, I'll read it, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's pretty obvious, right? Solomon was the son of David. He was the king in Jerusalem. Duh. And, you know, that, that fits with some parts of the book. This, this teacher guy was a guy who could build great projects. He was a guy who had money. He was a guy who uh, could indulge himself in pleasure. And so it seems like it could fit. But I think there are many reasons, and I'll give them to you, why I don't actually know if we can say for sure this is Solomon. First of all, Solomon's name never appears in the book, unlike Proverbs, unlike Song of Solomon, the other books that we know for a fact that he contributed to. His name never appears. Second, Son of David. It could literally be the Son of David, but as you know from your knowledge of the Bible, uh, Son of David is not uh, simply a literal meaning. The, bar, the, the blind man calls upon Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Yeah, Luke uh, 18.38, the so Son of David, the title. Every king in Jerusalem was the Son of David because he came from David's line. David's ancestry. So that doesn't really help us. Moreover, verse, verse 16 of the first chapter, why would Solomon say this? I've Surpassed all in wisdom who were over Jerusalem before me. How many were over Jerusalem? David. I mean, maybe he's talking about Melchizedek, I suppose, but that's not clear. That's not really clear at all. All who were over Jerusalem? All the kings? That's just David. It's his dad. That doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Moreover, the background of the book is not happy. If you read Ecclesiastes, you know it's not really only a happy book, there's a lot of oppression. A lot of evil, a lot of injustice here, a lot of problems. It's not at all like the picture of Israel we find in 1 Kings 4, 29-34. Solomon's reign is described as being a prosperous reign, a great reign, a glorious reign. We don't get that. We don't get that in uh, Ecclesiastes. And so I would actually put to you this idea, I would put to you this, this argument um, that some things in the book may fit Solomon, but not really, not the, whole, not the whole shebang. There's an alternative possibility that this teacher guy, sometime after Solomon, has put on the idea, the mantle of Solomon, as a kind of super wise man, a super Solomon, as one scholar puts it, he pictures for us a super Solomon to show us that the wisest man would return empty-handed from the quest for self-fulfillment. I have that quoted for you right here in the outline. So who's Koheleth? Who's this teacher? No idea. Maybe Solomon? Sure. Could be. Absolutely. Could be somebody else. I don't know. It's not part of the inspiration of Scripture. It's Not in the text. It's not mentioned. Um, so it could be Solomon. It could not be uh, Solomon. So next question. Who actually uh, wrote the book? I thought we just kind of answered that question, but we didn't, surprise. Uh, Who actually wrote the book? Not just the teacher. You see, verse 1, you'll read it right here, says the words of the preacher, the words of the teacher. The rest of the book, after the first chapter, starts talking about I. I said in my heart, I searched, I became great, I surpassed all, I did this, I found and then only in the middle, at uh, 727, at the end, in 12.9 through 14, do we find these words. The teacher, the teacher, the preacher also taught the people. So the point is simply that the teacher wrote 90% of the book, right? This Koheleth guy wrote about the 90%, the vast majority of the book. But. I'll put to you that there is a frame narrator. There's the introduction and the epilogue, right, the the opening and the closing of the book that are different. The opening and closing of the book are not the same. You have first person used most of the book, but then you have third person narrator. And to cap it all off, and this is partly why I included this in the on the back page of your handout you'll see what is one of the probably the most famous uh inclusio I'll use that term i suppose the most famous inclusio which is simply a literary device think of it as a big hug kind of wraps around the book think of it as a big hug that wraps around the whole book the, the most famous inclusio is right here in uh chapter 1 verse 2 vanity of vanities and uh Chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's repeated at the beginning. It's repeated at the end. It's classic. I, I don't know if you all read this. I remember when I was in 8th grade, ninth grade, I read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It was the first time I was introduced to this concept of a frame narrator. Conrad, you know, he goes to the Belgian Congo, and before he goes in the Belgian Congo, he writes a letter to his mom. And then he goes to the Belgian Congo, and he has all these adventures. He comes back at the very end, and he says, "Oh, hi, mom. These are my experiences. Love you. Bye." In essence, right? It's a framed. It's a literary device, classic, uh, designed to introduce and then conclude uh, the writings of someone else. So, the point I would put to you is that, uh, like several books in the Bible, this is not simply written by one guy at one time. Maybe a radical concept for some of us. I don't think it impacts our uh, holding to the inspiration and authority of Scripture. I think we have to take what, uh, what we have here seriously. So, um, that's what I would put to you. And why do I spend so much time? Normally, I would, I would never do any of this. this is, normally, the authorship, as I said before, is not, it's either obvious or it's not that big a deal. Why does it matter here? Well, I would put to you, and then I will pause for some questions, if you'll have any, or pushback. Uh, so what, right? <clears throat> I think most people agree. Everybody who reads the book says, hey, this teacher guy, whoever he is, if it's Solomon, really negative. Really negative. He says, life's hard, and then you die. Congratulations, right? Life's hard, and then you die. But then at the end, there's somebody who says, either uh, the, the narrator or the same guy, he says, oh, but fear God and keep his commandments. And the question is, how do those two methods mix together? To put it this way, this is the bottom of your first page, your handout, does the frame narrator or does the epilogue confirm or correct the teacher? Does it confirm or does it correct the teacher? Is it positive? Yes, you go. Is it negative? Is fear God and keep his commandments against the teacher, against the preacher, or in agreement? I'll give you the kind of, uh, progressive or critical uh, academic view, which is uh, this teacher guy is a cynic, he's a pagan, he's not a Christian, he's a Greek philosopher. He says, eat and drink and be merry and then die. And the epilogue is tacked on by the Jews to make it a moralistic thing. You know, the rabbis didn't, didn't like this book. The only reason they actually included it in the canon, they, they, wanted, they wanted to hide it. But they included it in the canon because they say, look, it ends with Torah. Fear God keep his commandments. So the academics will say, yeah, this is some moralistic, religious person trying to correct non-Christian belief. And so in the scholarly view, broadly speaking, the epilogue is a moralistic attempt to correct nihilism, pessimism, you know, anti-God thinking. What's the evangelical view? The common kind of conservative view um, is that the teacher, this Koheleth guy, is pretending. He is pretending for the sake of argument that uh, here's what life's like without God. You you can try pleasure, you can try uh, being wise, you can try working really hard, but let me show you really how all of that fails. And at the end of the day, here's what you gotta do. Fear God, keep His commandments. This plays heavily on... um, you know, how, how the godly live under God and the ungodly live under the sun. We'll get to that in a couple of seconds. Now, I don't think that's right. I think that's actually pretty uh, sophomoric. I think mean, that's a fairly really simplistic view. There's elements of it that, that are correct, but the whole theory of this uh, teacher guy being, you know, pretending to, to play an atheist and then ending up, you know, saying, oh, Christians are actually pretty great. Just fear God and you won't have this stuff happen to you. Again, that assumes the epilogue is correcting the false unbelieving view, a false worldview. I don't, I don't think that's the case, and you can, sh- I can show you that just by looking at the epilogue. If you want to turn to the back, you'll find the epilogue here at the bottom. Let's just work through it for a second here. You have uh, verse 9. This is the epilogue. Besides being wise, just stop there. So this epilogue says... Hey, actually, the message of the preacher is a wise message. The message of this teacher guy was actually a really good message. He's a wise guy. He taught the people knowledge. He, he arranged, he studied with great care. Well, what's the message of the preacher? According to the evangelicals, it's that, you know, a godless life uh, leads you astray. So he says here that, you know, this, this message is uh, a wise one. The preacher seeks to find words of delight. And I think most significantly, um, you, you, you have here the, the statement that, um, <clears throat> verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Beware of anything beyond these. What he's saying is that don't add to the book. Don't add to the book. Don't add to anything beyond what the teacher has taught. That's really important um, because if the epilogue is correcting a bad view, a bad worldview, that would be an addition. This this frame narrator guy would be adding to it. So in summary, let me simply say that I would argue that um, the narrator is agreeing with the teacher. This frame, this introduction, this closing guy, he is agreeing with the teacher. Before we get into the actual point of all this and what the meaning of the whole book is about, let me pause there for any questions or comments or pushback. It's a little bit of a different idea than may popular be, you may think of. Okay, let's uh, let's turn back to the first chapter. Let's look here and see. Uh, What is Ecclesiastes teaching us? In verse 1 verse 2, really, we get the uh, thesis statement for the whole book. The ESV translates, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, every week I kind of reduce the Hebrew I give you, so I'll just give you uh, this one Hebrew word for the day. It's the word hebel. Sometimes the V and the B can be uh, the same. You can do hebel, but it occurs 38 times. That's half, over half, almost half, of the occurrences in the whole book. It's very significant. What does the word mean? Well, it's translated here, vanity. That's because Jerome, the Latin guy, translated the Hebrew, Hebel, into vanity himself. That's been very influential. That's what the King James says. That's what other folks say. Um, The word itself, basically, at its most root meaning, means vapor or breath. There's evil, but over time, and in this book especially, it's coming to me in all sorts of things. One uh, one modern Yankee writer translates it as wacky, wicked, wackiness. You can use that if you want to. I think that's actually not a bad a bad thing. That's why I mention it. But what's the vanity, ladies? What's the vanity? Okay? Okay? Now, all those are good. That's vanity, but what's a vanity? Yeah, it's what you sit at when you're putting your makeup on, right? Not that I've, I'm not for, but what, what I'm told, right? It's what you, what you sit at. That's a vanity. A vanity, of course, as a concept is yeah, it's, it's ego. It's, it's focusing yourself. It's what Carly Simon says, right? You're so vain because you think this song is about you. You're vain. You're a vain person. Vanity is to be overly obsessed by how you look, be superficial, proud, arrogant. it can also mean, and this is what it is perhaps in the uh, Ten Commandments, emptiness, right taking the name of your Lord, your God in empty way, a vain way. but the issue I have here, friends, is that that's not the only way the word is used in this whole book. If you look at I'll just give you um, a, a little Slice of the way Hebel is used. Verse 2 says everything's Hebel. Verse 14, all that's done under the sun is Hebel. Chapter 2, verse 1, pleasure's hevel. 2.11, work is hevel. 2.15, wisdom's hevel. 2.23, laboring night and day is hevel. 5.10, money is Hebel. A wandering appetite, six nine is Hebel. The days of a man's life are hevel. 11.8, all that's coming is hevel. 11.10, youth and vigor are Hebel. So, I don't really think that pride or arrogance encapsulates all that Ecclesiastes says. I don't think emptiness necessarily encapsulates all that it says. Instead, this word hevel comes to mean all sorts of things. Fleeting, mystery, nonsense, bubble, futility, senseless, unfair, baffling, so many things. Why does the guy choose this word? I think he chooses it because it can mean a lot of different things. And it... In the whole book, he's kind of pointing out three major aspects, and sometimes he's hitting this aspect or that part, but generally, I think three basic ideas are rooted in this word, Hevel. First, the idea of fleetingness, that, that life itself is fleeting, life itself is brief, it's barely there. Second, emptiness. Life is empty. There's no weight to life. And then third, and I think this is vital as well. Frustration. Life is frustrating. Think about it. Maybe the best example I can give to you is actually uh, going outside this December. You can do this yourself. Homework in a few months. December cold. 545. I'm taking the dog out to the bathroom. What do I do? I breathe. What happens? I can see my breath. Hot breath, cold air. What happens? It goes away. It's fleeting. It's only there for a bit. If I want to see it again, I have to breathe again. But it's also empty. If I try to grab it, I won't be able to grab my breath. And it's frustrating. If I was going to chase if I had never understood anything about breathing and I was just seeing it for the first time and I was like, ooh, I want to see what that is and I try to get at it, I can't get at it. It's frustrating. It's puzzling. That's a hebel. It's a breath that's empty and frustrating and fleeting. I think part of the issue with meaninglessness, I don't like it, is that it assumes a skeptical view of life. That's part of the issue I have with the translation meaninglessness. If you go into that route, you will, be a kind of non, you will have a non-Christian worldview by the end of it. However, if you want in my personal translation that I prefer for the word itself, uh, I think I mentioned it here, absurd. Absurd. What's absurd? Well, the author gives you, in verse 3, a really key verse. It mentions three critical words that, that will be used throughout the whole book. And the ESV does a great job of translating. This is a good translation right here. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This kind of shows you what the absurdity of life is all about. First, this word gain. This word Gain. It refers to not just getting stuff, it's not just profit, but it's particularly the net gain. It's the remainder. It's after all is paid up for, all is said and done, what's left over. It's the ROI, the return on investment, at the end of the day. That's what this word, it's never used in the Old Testament, except in this book, it's used ten times here. It's the net, not the, not the gross. Second, this word toil used 23 times in the book. Uh, it, it refers not just to you know, your nine-to-five job. Uh, it refers to everything you really do in life. You know, Guess what? You had to drive here, and you use up gas. You use up gas, and someday you're going to have to go and get more gas. It's going to be frustrating. We have to vacuum up at least one extra dog from all the hair that our dog sheds every week. And she keeps on shedding. It's not like she stops one day. The dishes get dirty, right? And we clean them. And they get clean. And then I go upstairs and I find, whoops, I left a cup up here. I forgot that one. Maybe I don't forget it. Maybe I clean them all. And then what, two hours later, I'm using them again. More dishes. More cleaning. Life is toil. Even when you're relaxing, you get tired. Relaxing, you get tired. And that's what chapter one really shows us in, in large part. Uh, verse four a generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. You will die. I will die. Think about this. How many celebrities do you know from the year 1922? How many famous people? I'm sure you know a couple. You know? Jazz age ish. Warren G. Harding, something like that. Calvin Coolidge, a little bit. How many people do you know from a thousand years ago? 1022. I, I, maybe I, could give, I can give you a couple of kings. That's because I'm a nerd. It's about it. Nobody who's, you know, an ordinary guy. Not really. What happens? Generation comes, generation goes. You, you will die and people will forget you. We, we leave our legacy, right? We talk about, oh, I'm going to leave a legacy. I'm going to write it down in a book and later, you know, my great grandkids will read it. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll think it's silly and they'll just throw it away. Just like you would throw away your great grandparent stuff. See comes, your goes? It's frustrating. It's not just empty, it's frustrating that that happened. That that's not the way it should be. Toil, labor. Third, In this verse, gain toil under the sun. This is a key phrase, not unique to Ecclesiastes, but uh, used 30 times here. We know what the words mean, under the sun. What does the idiom mean? It's an expression. What does the idiom mean? Well, there's a common view I don't take that says that under the sun is, again, this kind of non-Christian worldview. It's what non-Christians live under the sun, and Christians live under God. That's a common view. Um, I I don't think that's the case. I give you here a quote. I think it's helpful from O. Paul Robertson. He says this, Under the sun does not convey the idea of a view of life without God. The phrase essentially describes the cycle of human life on this earth defined by the sun rising and the sun setting. Under the sun is a realistic perspective on life in this world in which humanity has fallen into sin. He looks at 6.12, right? Man is like a shadow under the sun, 9.6. Uh, After we die, we don't have any interaction under the sun. This is very critical to understand. That under the sun is not an evangelistic. This is not primarily an evangelistic book. It can be useful. There are parts of it. that can be very helpful in apologetics talking the non-believers. Yes. Very helpful for modern or postmodern folks. Yes. But it's a book for Christians because guess what? I'm going to throw something out to you I think maybe a little radical. The Christian life is not all fairy tales and flowers. It's not all a happy experience. It's a hard life. You see, the, the, the value of this book depends on your view of the Christian life. Is the Christian life Without toil, wearisome toil. Is the Christian life without fleetingness? Is it without emptiness? Is it without frustration? You know it you have all those things together. Why? Because we're in a fallen world. We live under the sun. We live in a world that's tragic. We live in a world that's absurd. You have experienced, you know this for a fact. You've experienced it when a young person dies. And we say, Why? Why? They were just in the car, driving along. They were the past. They weren't doing anything. They weren't sinning at that point in time. There was no causation you could point to. t boned dead. What's that? I thought Proverbs said that, you know, if you live righteously, you're going to have a long life. Ecclesiastes says, guess what? The, The wise and the fool both die. The wise and the fool both die. The righteous and the wicked both die. Because we live life under the sun. It just means life right now. It's not a limiting phrase, but a total phrase for our lives on this earth. The sun rises, the sun sets. So the point of the book is simply this. In one, one fell swoop, what's the point of the book? In a fallen world, there is no return on your activity. You do all sorts of things, and you will not get returned from them. You will have a fleeting, frustrating, empty life. There is no lasting gain. In fact, this word Hebel, if, uh, if you do a little Hebrew, same, same word as this right here, Abel. Abel is a case study for heaven. What happens to Abel? I mean, he's a righteous guy. He worked hard. He gives of the first firstfruits. He does what you're supposed to do. And what happens to him? His life is cut short. Abel is murdered. He's dead. His blood, Hebrews tells us, cries out. It cries out. And that's what happens under the sun in a fallen world life does not go the way it should that's hebel that's hebel that's absurd it's it's that's preposterous and and the author shows us this the uh, in in nature he he points in chapter 1 to 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 the wind he says look the wind blows in north and south and and it does all this activity but but where does it go where does it do it doesn't do anything it just keeps going around water. He says the rivers, they flow into the sea. 24-7, rivers are working. 24-7, the mighty Mississippi flows into the Gulf of Mexico. And the Gulf of Mexico is never filled. The oceans are never like filled up to the brim. It keeps on going and going and going and going. Constant work, constant energy. That's why you have hydroelectric power. That's why you have water mills. But so what? There's no ultimate end. There's no ultimate gain. Wasted energy. The author goes on to say, verse 9, verse 8, verse 9, uh, our eyes, your eyes are always on. I mean, you're closing them. I'm no scientist here. I treat this with caution. You close your eyes. What are you doing when you're sleeping? Your eyes just not moving? I think they're moving, aren't they? Rapid eye movement, R E M. Your eyes are always working. Your ears are always hearing. You can't turn your ears off. You can't say, stop hearing. There's no mute button for your ears. They're always working. And the way he puts it, the ears never fill with... You're never filled up with hearing. You're always working. There's always another chore to do at home. There's always another ladder you can climb at work. Toil after toil after toil. And lastly, he says, verse 11... There's no remembrance. You will not be remembered. You won't be remembered in a hundred years. I won't be remembered in a hundred years. I mean, it's like the the mountains. People have mountains in after them. And then what happens 50 years later? They change the name. Streets. You know, whenever there's a revolution, streets get changed. Then they get changed back or they get changed a different name. Right? Death consumed us all. Now, now, this is where people can say, uh, uh aha, an atheist. A nihilist, a pessimist, I knew it. This is a non-Christian view. No, friends, this is realism. This is reality. You feel it. The, the absurdity that people like Abel, made in God's image, given glory and honor, dominion over the world, what happens? They toil and they toil and they get no gain. This is Psalm 39. Our life is a breath. It's a hevel. He'll say money doesn't work. He'll say wisdom even doesn't work. But what's fascinating here is the conclusion. This is where we're going to get to our application, friends, of the whole book. <clears throat> what's fascinating is the conclusion, and the words of the teacher are not Eeyore. They're not simply, life's hard, that's it. It, it sounds like, from when I've hit it, I've told you, because we can't cover everything. But just to, just to highlight maybe a couple of, a couple of things here. Um, chapter 2, Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. It's fascinating here that one of the key applications that the Puritans, people you don't think are very happy, just striking here, that the Puritans themselves, when they are reading through and interpreting Ecclesiastes, one of their major application points is... What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy, enjoy Him forever. Matthew Henry, I think I have it here in your uh, your handout. I I give you his uh, his brief comment on this section. One should allow himself a sober, cheerful use of them. That's his, his friends, the food, drink to have meat and drink for himself, his family, his friends, and so delight his senses and make his soul enjoy all the good that is to be had out of them. So one of the key applications, and you see it throughout the book, which is why it's not just a negative anti-Christian screed, but it's actually a way for Christians to live under the sun. How do you live when life's absurd, when it's frustrating and it's empty and you keep tolling and tolling and tolling and there's no progress? You enjoy what God's given to you. You enjoy it. You enjoy the food and the drink. You enjoy the friends. You enjoy the family. You enjoy the wife of your youth. You enjoy these things. Right? The, the Puritans got this in a way, I think, better than many contemporary evangelicals do. They understood it. However, second, there's a tension here. There is the reality that we live under the sun. We don't yet live in heaven. We're not yet fully who we ought to be. And so we need to have the real realism. Don't dismiss it. The problem I have with the sophomoric evangelical view is that it dismisses all the fallenness. It dismisses all the hard things. It cuts off the hard edges of life. I know it's not fun to think about what this book tells us. It's not fun to think about this, but it's real. We are to weep with those who weep. Or to put it this way, we need to have the word Hevel on the church's vocab list. Do you catechize your kids in Hevel? Do you show them that work and toil? Do you you know that yourself? That there is a frustrating part to life. That life can seem empty at times. If you don't, then no, no wonder when they go out and they're living and they say, whoa! I wasn't taught this when... By my family, by my church, this is not the God I know. I, I guess God must be wrong then. Ecclesiastes actually is very powerful as a uh, child-rearing evangelistic tool in that way. Uh, second, however, is the tra- uh, third, I guess I'd say, is, is the traditional interpretation that um, we are called to be heavenly-minded. We are called to be heavenly minded. The traditional interpretation is right. There is vanity here. I mean, when you read through all of the stuff here, does it tempt you to love the things of this world quite so much? This is what the church father said. This is what the Puritans also said. They asked themselves the question, am I drawn too much to the things of this present age? Am I drawn too much to earthly things? It's passing away. It's going to end. It's wearisome. It's frustrating. It's going to be empty. We were made for a better world. That's why this world hurts. And then I guess fourth. The Hevel of Hevels. What's the Hevel of Hevels? What's the absurdity of absurdities? What's the hugest Hevel of them all? It's the cross. It's Calvary. The innocent one. The righteous one. The author of life dies. The author of life is killed by those to whom He gave life. His own creatures. That's not the way it should be. The sinless one takes on sin. That's not the way it should be. That's absurd. Christ toiled under the sun. He toiled endlessly over and over and over again. What does He get at the end of it? Hevel. He's cut down in His prime. Hevel. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's heaven, But why did he do it? He does it for you. To show you that even in heaven, even in the absurdity, even in your emptiness, even in the tragedies, God is working mightily. So what should we do? I mean, should we just say, this is, this is real life. Eh, just kind of take it on the chin. No. It's fascinating here that the teacher will tell you, hey, worketh heaven. And then he'll say, nothing better than that you should go out and work. Nothing better than that you should go out and work. It's uh, 3.13. 3.12. I perceive there's nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as you live. Be joyful and do good as long as you live, even in the middle of heaven. Be joyful and do good in the middle of absurdity. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. It's toil. It's hard. It's unrelenting. Take pleasure in it. This is not Eeyore. This is someone who has a, a, understands God's perspective on things. This is not a, a, an atheist perspective. This is a Christian perspective. It's what Luther says. I'll give you the quote here by Luther because I think it's a beautiful quote. Uh, Luther, by the way, loved the book. I think it's right. The main point in this book, he says, is that there's no higher wisdom on earth under the sun than that every man should fill his post industriously and in the fear of God, not troubling himself whether, his, uh, whether or not his work should turn out if he would fain have it, but contenting himself and leaving the ordering of all things great and small entirely to God. And I can go on. You can read that rest of it yourself. But the point is that Luther's right. Life is heaven. Under the sun, it's hard. As a Christian, you're called to work with joy. Not just do it, grin and bear it, but you're called to work hard and to, to take, take what, what God gives you. He may give you bird dung like He gave Muhammad Ali. That's what He may give you. And so, we do come to... It's only as you, you have to go through the tension before you get to the end. So many Christians just skip to the, pro, the, the epilogue and say, hey, just fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. That's friend. Right? I, I don't think that's helpful. Um, but I'll stop here. I, I'm so sorry. We have maybe a minute or two for questions or comments. Um, but you have to journey through the whole book before you get to the epilogue. And then you're renewed to say, yes, I fear God. Yes, I want to keep his commandments. In the middle of an absurd, crazy, wacky, wicked, wacky world. Thoughts. Clarifications. Concerns. Going once. Absolutely. And you can do that from the from this book. Yes, sir? Yes, sir. Greg. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Hmm. Well, good. Um, Patrick, why don't you just go close us in prayer? Thank you. Thank you.